Let us turn, if you will, once again to the wonderful book of Colossians. Boy, dynamite comes in small packages, doesn't it? And uh, that is what we have here in this little four-chapter epistle that we've been devoting so much time to recently. I pray that these messages have not only enhanced your Bible knowledge, but also have been a practical benefit and application to you both in life and spiritually as well. We're talking about the cross today as we look forward toward Easter. Of course, we know it's all about the empty tomb, but before we get there, we have to pause and think back about the price that was paid, the life that was given, the sacrifice that was offered. And today's message, we're going to be in Colossians 2, starting in verse 11. And the title of our message, very simply, is Because of the Cross. About a hundred years ago, some bereaved mothers in Bladensburg, Maryland, decided to build a World War I memorial in honor of their fallen sons. It was a 40-foot cross that was eventually erected, and it had the names of 49 servicemen who died in the war. Those names were engraved on the base. And I have a picture coming up that shows you uh, this cross called the Peace Cross as it came to be known. It sat at a prominent intersection without controversy there in Maryland until 2017. And that's when the American Humanist Association filed a lawsuit petitioning the Maryland State Court to have the cross removed because, in their words, quote, it promotes the core symbol of Christianity and breaches the wall of separation between church and state. There was months of litigation. The case of the cross, as it was known, finally reached the Supreme Court of the United States, the highest court in our land. And in 2019, the Supreme Court, in the case of the American Legion versus the American Humanist Association, ruled in favor of keeping the peace cross standing on public ground. And all of God's people would say, Amen to that. For now, the cross still stands there in Bladenburg, Maryland. But that is not the case in some places around the world. You'll remember back to 2015 when we were introduced to the terrible terrorist group known as ISIS, these radical offshoot of Islam. These ISIS fighters were running roughshod over the Middle East and we saw images of many churches being destroyed all across the Middle East as Crosses that had stood atop these ancient churches for hundreds of years were torn down by the Islamic State. And then if you go to China, there you, of course, know there's a communist regime that continues to crack down against the exploding underground church. In 2018, the Chinese government ordered the destruction of, listen to this, 1,700 crosses from churches across the country. There's the headline, China cracks down on religion. Crosses burned at Christian churches. Xi Jinping, that's the president of China, photos installed. Crosses can only be displayed inside Chinese churches as long as they are accompanied by pictures of the president and chairman Mao. In fact, here's an image of an inside of a Chinese church. You know, you shouldn't be surprised that the world hates the cross 
and the Savior for whom it stands. Paul said many years ago in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18 that the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Now in the first century, the cross, as Brother Preston already suggested, was the most detested symbol of Roman domination and cruel capital punishment. And in the 21st century today, I assert that the cross still divides and evokes controversy to this day. The atheist hates the cross because they say it is an affront to their intelligence. It declares the gospel of a God that they say does not exist, and yet every day God gives them breath with which to blaspheme His name. The Muslim hates the cross because the Muslim views the cross as a sign of weakness. To them, God would never suffer and die for man. And so if you read the Quran, you find out that according to their distortion of the truth, that Jesus never went to the cross. The sinner hates the cross because, friend, it's an affront to his pride. The cross displays the ugly cost of sin, and it simply preaches the message that we could never achieve salvation simply by, quote-unquote, being a good person. While the cross is hated by many, it is cherished by the few who have been changed there. What does the old hymn say? On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. That's my song. That's the song that God gives all of the blood bought and redeemed. We cherish the old rugged cross. So whether you glory in it or you spit at it, one thing is for certain, the cross cannot be ignored. Hate it or love it. Christian author Max Licato wrote very eloquently about this in one of his books. Listen to what he said, quote, He said, The cross sits on the timeline of history like a compelling diamond. Its tragedy summons all sufferers. Its absurdity attracts all cynics. Its hope lures all searchers. My, what a piece of wood. History has idolized it and despised it, gold-plated it and burned it, worn it and trashed it. History has done everything but ignore it. That's the one option the cross does not offer, he wrote. You can't ignore a piece of lumber that suspends the greatest claim in history. A crucified carpenter claiming to be God. The bottom line is sobering. If the account is true, it is history's hinge. If not, it is history's hoax. We all have to make a decision about the cross of Jesus Christ, don't we? We're on one side of the cross or the other. There's really only two kinds of folks in the world. Those that are saved and those that are lost. In Colossians 2, Paul points us back to the centrality of the cross and speaks to us about what Christ accomplished there through His suffering and His death. 
lest we think that the cross is just some kind of religious symbol or an ornate piece of jewelry to wear around our necks, Paul reminds us in this passage of three great victories that Jesus accomplished there for you and for me. Number one is this, if you're taking notes. Because of the cross, our freedom has been secured. Because of the cross, our freedom has been secured. We'll start reading in verse 11 and 12. Follow along on the screen if you don't have a Bible. In verse 11 we see this, "...in whom also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead." We need to keep in mind that as Paul writes these words, the Colossian church is a theological battleground at this time. Not only were they under attack from the aberrant philosophy of Gnosticism, which we looked at last week, but they were also contending with the age-old enemy of legalism. Now, what do I mean when I say legalism? Well, in Paul's day, a legalist, somebody who mixed the Old Testament law with New Testament grace, and they taught that in order for Gentiles to be saved, they had to adhere to the Jewish law along with faith in Christ. And so the formula for the legalist was grace plus works equals salvation. In other words, what these folks in the first century said is, Gentiles who wanted to become Christians, they had to keep the Sabbath. They had to observe all the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. They, the males had to be circumcised, etc. On and on down the list, this never-ending list of demands. The early church grappled much with this controversy. In fact, if you remember in Acts chapter 15, they had the so-called Jerusalem Council where they decided once and for all, what must the Gentiles do to be saved? And the answer was very simply, faith in Christ alone. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Now, one reason why Paul wrote this church was to clear up that doctrine, the legalism problem, and to remind the Colossians, hey, look, Colossians, you are free in Christ from the back-breaking demands of the Old Testament regulations. And in this passage, we saw verse 11 and 12, I know that they were very heavy as we read them, but you'll notice that Paul touches on two symbols. Two symbols of faith. One was circumcision and the other was baptism. And Paul uses these analogies to help the Colossians to understand, hey, you're free. You're utterly free in Christ. How does he do it? Well, notice what he said again in verse 11. In him you were also circumcised, watch this, with a circumcision Without hands. In other words, he's talking about a spiritual reality. Without hands. And then he goes on by putting off the body of the flesh. What is Paul getting at there? Well, we have to go back to the Old Testament. And we understand according to the Mosaic Law, every Jewish male had to be circumcised eight days after his birth. Circumcision in the Old Testament carried with it two meanings. There was an ethnic meaning and a spiritual meaning. Ethnically... As it was given to Abraham in Genesis 17, it was a mark that identified a male as a member of the Jewish family, that they were a descendant 
of Abraham. That's the ethnic symbol. But there was a spiritual symbol intended in that as well. And spiritually, what Paul is saying here, that circumcision was supposed to symbolize, was man's dire need of salvation and grace. Just as a piece of skin was removed, Paul is saying, look, you need to have the, the, the flesh nature, the old sin, Adam nature, removed from you, and Christ did that on the cross. That's his message. Now, John MacArthur has a great comment about this. Listen to what he said. He said, quote, The cutting away of the male skin was a graphic way to show that he needed cleansing at the deepest level of his being. The physical act of removing a piece of the body was meant to convey that man's heart needed spiritual surgery to remove sin from the heart. Now the problem in the first century was this. There were many Jews in that day who were trusting in the ritual of circumcision as salvation. They said, look, we belong to Abraham's family. We've gone through the surgery. Externally, we have everything that counts for that. Therefore, because of that, we're saved. And you Gentiles who want to come into Christ, you need to do that as well. However, you go back into the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6, even back then, in the time of Moses, God reminded His people what He really demanded from them was this. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and that you may live. See, what really needed to happen was the hardness of the heart needed to be stripped away. The old sin nature needed to be discarded and, and, and done away with. And that's what Paul was saying to the Colossians. His argument is that the circumcision was just an Old Testament ritual that pointed to a New Testament reality. It's the cross of Christ and His saving work that removes sin from our heart. Not a religious ritual. Now Paul uses another analogy here in verse 12. He points to baptism. Did you see that? Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Now there's a parallel passage we should explore along with this. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. And there we read this. Paul explains the symbolism of baptism. He said, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Once again, Paul is saying, it's a physical picture that points to a spiritual reality. Baptism identifies us with Christ. Jesus died, He was buried, He rose again, and in the same way, that's what we testify when we go under the water and we come up, we die to the old self, we're raised up to walk in a resurrection power. And what he's saying is, look at these symbols, because these things have happened spiritually in your life, you are free today. Baptism is a picture of that spiritual reality. We go down into a liquid tomb. We come up again changed. And there's nothing in baptism that saves us. Amen? I know some people that have been baptized and they're mean as a snake. Just because you've been baptized doesn't mean you're saved. 
Hey, if you haven't had the circumcision of the heart, if God hasn't gone in and done surgery and taken out the old stony heart and given you a heart that beats after Christ, you're still dead, even though you may have gotten wet in church. Some folk who need to hear that today because they're trusting in baptism to save them. I prayed a prayer when I was six. I walked an aisle with my daddy. I went under the water. But friend, Paul is saying, look, that's not enough. You have to know Christ. And you need to realize those are just signs of a spiritual reality. And if the spiritual reality isn't there, then it's just religious ritual. It's just bondage. So he's saying to the Colossians, look, guys, <laughs> don't you realize how free you are? Just like circumcision, Christ has done away with the old man. He's cast aside the sin. And just like baptism, that old life you used to live, it's dead and buried. It's in the past. If the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Now you say, why is this important, Pastor? Why are you spending so much time talking about some of these weird Old Testament concepts like circumcision? Well, because here's why. Because religion, with a capital R, hasn't gone anywhere. And just like the legalists of Paul's day, there are many in our day who are trusting in a religious ritual and not the cross for salvation. They think they're free, but they're really still enslaved. Some are trusting in church attendance. Well, I go to church as much as I can, Pastor, and they mistake sitting in a pew for a relationship with God. Just because you are sitting in a McDonald's doesn't make you a Big Mac. Amen? Right? You can be near in proximity and far from God in your heart. Some are trusting in their confession. Well, I confess to a priest. Well, guess what? The Bible says I can go directly to the throne of God and confess my sins. I don't need to go through a man. There are some who say, well, I venerate a saint. Or I pray with the rosary beads. Others are looking at their baptism as a child. They've been, they were baptized as an infant, and yet they don't even remember it. But because they say that their parents and a priest doused water over their head, they think they're saved. Some point to their good works. I'm a good person. I follow the law. I don't abuse my family. I pay my taxes and so on. I pass the good person test. Some are pointing to philanthropy. Their giving and their, their goodness. And friend, what the cross says to us today is, Hey, you can't be good enough and you don't have to because He did it for you. That's the whole point. You can be free in Christ. Religion is what sinful people try to do for a holy God, but the gospel is the good news of what God has already done for sinful people. Religion says do, but the cross of Jesus Christ says done. Amen? Many years ago, there was a, a, a pastor, Baptist pastor in Boston. His name was A.J. Gordon. Here's his picture he had a tremendous church back in the 1800s. And one day he was outside his church and he noticed a, a young boy walking by the entrance of the church. And the boy was carrying in his hand a rusty cage. And inside that cage were several birds that were fluttering nervously. And he was curious. He stopped the boy. He said, son, 
what are you going to do with those birds? The boy said, well, me and some friends were out in the field and we trapped them. I guess I'm just going to take these things home and feed them to my old cat. Well, when Gordon heard that, he said, son, how about we do something different? He dug down in his pocket and he found several coins in his pocket. He said, how about you let me buy those old birds off of you? The boy agreed. He thought that was a splendid idea. He said, okay, preacher, that's a good deal, but you're making a bad bargain. The boy walked away happy as he whistled with those coins jingling in his pocket. Meanwhile, A.J. Gordon said he walked around to the back of the church. He opened the door of that little coop, and he let those struggling little birds free. A week later, Sunday rolled around. He brought that little rusty cage up to the pulpit, and he set it there. He preached a whole sermon on that cage and the freedom that Christ gives us. And he said at the end of his sermon, he said, You know, that boy told me when I bought those off of him that those birds weren't songsters. He said, But when I opened the door and they fluttered off into the sky, I thought I could hear them singing, Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Like a bird out of prison who's taken its flight like a blind man that God gave back his sight, like a poor wretched beggar who's found fortune and fame. I'm so glad that I found out that he would bring me out by his holy name. Thank God I'm free, free, free from this world of sin. Washed in the blood of Jesus, I've been born again. Hallelujah, I'm saved, saved, saved by his wonderful grace. I'm so glad that I found out He would bring me out by His holy name. Friend, if you've been set free like those birds and been given flight, you know what I'm talking about. Because of the cross, our freedom has been secured. Then notice this, number two. Because of the cross, our forgiveness has been settled because of the cross, our forgiveness has been settled. Notice what he said here in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him. Here it is. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. You want to underline that word all. <laughs> By canceling out the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands that he set aside, watch this, nailing it to the cross. It's a good thing there wasn't water in that. Somebody would have got baptized. Because of the cross, our forgiveness has been settled. In Paul's day, when a criminal broke the law, and they stood before a judge, they were condemned and given that sentence. And what the judge handed the jailer was something called a certificate of debt. Paul mentions that here in verse 14, canceling out the record of debt that stood against us with the legal demands. This was the criminal's debt to society. On the certificate was spelled out their crime, the date that their sentence was given, what debt they owed society, how many years they serve, would serve, and what they would need to do to pay back that debt, 
And then they were put in prison, and the certificate of debt was hung outside the prisoner's cell. When the prisoner had finally fulfilled their duty and paid back their debt, a jailer would unlock the door, set them free, take the certificate of debt, and write across it a Latin phrase. The phrase was tetelestai, and what it meant was paid in full. He would hand the prisoner the certificate and they would be able to go scot-free in case anybody ever accused them of not paying the debt or being in double jeopardy. They could show the certificate and see Tetelestai written across it. And what Paul is saying here to us is that we had racked up an immense debt against God due to our years of sinning. Our guilt mounted up like an IOU that we could never pay. If you think about it, your list is probably longer than you might want to admit. On that certificate of debt would be written all the lust and all the lies, all the evil and the shameful deeds, all the years wasted in the prodigal years. But here's the good news of the cross. Here's the message that Paul would have us to learn today, that Jesus paid a debt He did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay he hung on the cross and He served our time. Our case was settled out of court by the judge's son. And friends, some of Jesus' final words from the cross bear new meaning in John 19.30 when you understand this passage and you understand what Jesus said. In one of those final statements He made on the cross, He said, It is finished, literally in Latin, to tell us the same phrase that would have been written across a debtor's certificate. Paid in full. Friend, you'll glory in the cross and understand it as something done for us when you begin to realize it was something done by us. It was my sin. It was my debt. It was my shame and my guilt that put Him there. Oh, what a Savior. That saying, it is finished. Have you ever thought about it? What was Jesus really saying in that moment as the skies blackened and the earth buckled and the veil was rent in the temple top to bottom and Jesus said it is finished? What was He really saying? He was saying at least these three things. The pain of suffering was finished. How do you and I fathom all that Jesus endured for those six hours? The mockery, the beating, the spitting, the shaming, the agony... All of that is one dimension of the physical suffering of which you and I really don't have a category for. But there's another form of suffering that you and I must catalog as the mystery of God. How in the world Jesus felt His Father turning His back. As He could not look upon the Son becoming the sin bearer. He became a curse for you and for me. He took the sting of death so that we might be set free. The pain of suffering was finished. You know what else was finished? Praise God, the practice of sacrifice. <laughs> he was the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. You see, in the Old Testament, it was an endless sacrificial system, an endless relay of rituals and priests going in and out of the temple carving up animals, shedding blood, sprinkling on the altar. The job of the priest was never done. 
you study the furniture of the tabernacle, there was a table, there was a lampstand, there was an altar, there was a veil, there was all these things, but you know what there never was in the temple? Go back and look, it was a chair. There was never a chair in the Old Testament tabernacle or in the temple. Why? Because the priest's work was never done. Praise God. But when the Son of God was offered as the Lamb of God on a Roman altar outside the city some 2,000 years ago, suspended between heaven and earth, He said, it is finished. In other words, there's no more lambs that need to die. There's no more blood that needs to be spread on the altar. I've done it. I've completed it. Everything that the Old Testament looked forward to, I fulfilled it down to the gnat's whisker. Every sacrifice from this point on is superfluous at best and blasphemous at worst. And so the practice of sacrifice is finished. The cross is the reason today I don't have to bring a lamb before you and shed its blood. You know what else was finished? The plan of salvation was finished. (laughs) Salvation is not a joint offer between God and man. Entirely a work of grace appropriated solely by faith. Listen to what Spurgeon said. I couldn't have said it any better. He said, How could a wretched sinner add his counterfeit farthing to the costly ransom which Christ paid into the treasure house of God? How could I add anything from what Christ did? It's complete. It is finished. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation now notice this one word in verse 13 it's so important did you see it there he said having been forgiven us all our sins do you realize how precious that word is because there are some out there hearing this message who think I'm too damaged God can't love me you don't know how low My pit was. You don't know how dark my past was. But look at that little word there. Circle it, underline it, highlight it. All, all those sins nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. You just go down the ledger and look. It's all forgiven. Some of you are wondering what my prop is for today. It brought me across to show you Jesus Christ did. This is my certificate of debt. As I open it, I don't like what I see. The wages of sin is death. Romans 3.23 And then as I begin to study my ledger, my certificate of death, it just gets longer and it gets darker and it gets more hopeless. How could I ever pay this off? You say, what's on the list, brother? Murder. Oh, yes, I've done that in my heart. Idolatry. Lust. Theft. Blasphemy. Anger. Disobedience. Shame. Lies. Cowardice. Greed. Adultery. Slander. Hatred. Prejudice. Guilt. Blame. Shifting. Gossip. Pride. Hypocrisy. Envy. Sloth. Cheating. Ingratitude. Boasting. Unforgiveness. Covetousness. Sabbath breaking. Rebellion. Materialism. A hard heart. Regret. Cursing. Hedonism. Selfishness. Drunkenness. And sexual immorality. What does your list look like? Oh God, I was hopeless. 
This was my shame. This and so much more was my guilt. But I'm thankful, oh God, I'm thankful today that long ago it was put down on an old rugged cross and they stretched him out and they nailed my debt down to the cross. Oh my God. He drove the nails. <laughs> and Paul said, don't you get it? Don't you see what he did? He took this thing, this long list that you could never pay, that you were hopeless, that you were undone, and it, it was nailed to that cross with Jesus Christ. And when he said it is finished, and when he said it is finished, Oh, you know what I got? He gave, I gave him my sin, my debt, and he handed over to me a certificate that said, To tell us, die paid in full. And friend, I fold that up and I take that with me and I carry that everywhere I go. You see, friend, that's what the cross means to me. That our freedom has been secured. And that our forgiveness has been settled. I don't have to pay because of the life that was given for me. Here's number three and I'm done today. Number three, because of the cross, our foe was subdued. I'm going to try and finish this message Look at what it says in verse 15. Look at this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing them in Him. Paul uses the imagery here of a, of a Roman general who returned from a successful campaign on the battlefield. It was customary to give a conquering general a victory parade through the streets of Rome. In tow, behind that general would have been all the spoils of conquest. Captured soldiers, gold, silver, weaponry, horses, everything that they had plundered from the other people. This was Rome's way of thumping their chest. Of saying, look at us, you don't want to mess with us, we'll kill you and we'll take your stuff. And then we'll parade your women and children through the streets as slaves. Paul is stealing that imagery. And he says, look, in a similar way, that's what Jesus did to the forces of Satan. You see, wouldn't you like to have been there? When Jesus ascended and he went through the atmosphere and he entered into the third heaven to the glory and the applause and the accolades of the angels. I wonder if one of the angels said to the other, He's coming. Here He is. He's coming up through the stratosphere. There He goes through the second heaven. Gabriel, get ready. When He puts feet up here in the third heaven, I want you to be ready to sing. And when He came home, there was a glorious homecoming into heaven. The applause and the accolades of the angels. If you read over in Ephesians 4, 8, it alludes to the fact that when Christ ascended into heaven, it said that when He ascended on high, He led hosts captives. In other words, what Paul is saying there is that when He came 
out of the grave and up into the sky at the ascension, that he took the souls from paradise. That is the Old Testament saints who had died in faith, believing in Christ. He took their souls up to the third heaven with him. He led them out of captivity. He brought back the spoils of his win. And friend, I want you to know today that Christ has forever disarmed our enemy, Satan. Not only was Satan stripped of the power of death, but the enemy also lost one of his most powerful weapons against you and me. It's called slander. You see, the Bible tells me in Revelation 12 and verse 10 that Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. What that means is that in God's courtroom, Satan could stand there as a prosecuting attorney. He could bring one charge against another, against you and me. But because of the cross, Paul said he's been disarmed. He made an open shame of all the principalities and powers. And what that means is that in the courtroom of God, Satan can hiss and fight and threat and bring those things to the attention of God. But we have a divine defense attorney who steps forward on our behalf. He's our advocate. And friend, when Judge Jesus stands forward, he's able to offer the good witness about you and I. Yes, those sins are true. But friend, I gave him a certificate. It's called to tell us die. It's paid in full. And that thing is laid down and Satan has to be in silence. Paul said in Romans 8, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it that will condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Because of the cross, Satan has no authority to bring up my past, my sins, my shortcomings, my darkness, my dirtiness, the things that I want to hide in a closet. Satan can't bring it up anymore. He's a defeated foe, living on borrowed time. Friend, my Christ has already taken his big size 12 and put it on the head of the serpent and started to push down. He's the serpent crusher. And just like old Johnny Tiller used to say, when Satan reminds you of your past, you be sure and remind him of his future. Because my Jesus has his foot on the head of the serpent. story is told that right after the Battle of Waterloo, the great General Napoleon gathered what was left of his staff, his lieutenants and sergeants and so on, he was defeated, a crushing blow at Waterloo. He, all his hopes of ruling over Europe were dashed. And the British defeated him that day. It's said that in rage, the, the diminutive dictator pointed his finger up at a map that was hanging on the wall. He pointed his finger at the British Isles, which were in red. And he said this, Were it not for that one red spot... I will have conquered the whole world. And friend, I'm telling you today, Satan is a defeated foe. And all he can do is point that bony finger at the cross and say, were it not for that one red spot, I would have had them all. But friend, he rose again. He paid the debt. He took my certificate. And it was nailed with my Savior. Forever to be buried 
in the tomb and arise in forgiveness. My friend, this is the hope that we have. The cross of Christ. Praise God, the debt doesn't stand. 